You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So as we dive into John chapter 3, and we're finishing out chapter 3 here this morning, um, this is a really meaningful passage to me and a special passage to me. Many, many, many years ago, when I preached my first sermon, it was out of this passage. And it was not a good sermon. So I did not build this sermon off of that one. But this passage is very, is very meaningful to me. And I'll never forget, it's my first opportunity to preach. I'm so excited. I literally spent months crafting this sermon, which wasn't very good, but got up to preach it. And I'm, I'm excited and I'm beginning to preach this sermon. And there's a gentleman who we'll call John, who's in a section like right over here with how things were configured in that auditorium. And I see John's eyes begin to get heavy and I go, oh no. And, and then they get heavier and then they close. And I'm thinking he's in deep prayer. And then his head nods forward and I go, no, he's in deep sleep. And I could actually hear him snoring a little bit. And someday when I get to be with the Lord and with him, because he's with the Lord now, I, I really am going to ask him why he would come up to me every time I preached after he had slept and say, Jay, that was the greatest sermon. That just, <laughs> that just so moved me. I, just, I can't wait to ask him, John, explain that to me. Great godly man and a great passage. And hopefully... We'll keep you awake for this one because this is a very meaningful, necessary, profound, powerful word from the Lord. And it's life-changing as is God's word and is the word of God when we encounter him through it. And so with that being said, um, I'm gonna read this passage to you. And as I do so, I wanna encourage you to look for the identity statements in here. This is all about identity. God's and ours. So, so watch for this as I read this to you. And we'll pick up right where we left off with Gary Brashears when he finished the earlier part of this chapter last week. So after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anion near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. 
The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains upon them. Now, a really powerful passage, and there's probably 20 sermons swimming around in this. We'll just settle for one today, and we'll jump down into the passage here a little bit, just for the sake of time. So it says that, that Jesus and his disciples, in particular his disciples, were baptizing, and an argument develops between, us, between some of John's disciples about ceremonial washing. We don't know exactly what it was about. We can make some guesses, but that isn't the real issue. The real issue is this. Everybody is going to Jesus and the disciples to get baptized. Now, in your relationships, to make a point, or sometimes when you're overcome with emotion, do you ever exaggerate? You always do this. You never do this. Well, that you can feel the emotion in this. John, this is a crisis. Everyone is going to that other guy. What are you going to do about it? Because John by every metric and measure that this world uses, you are failing. You are losing popularity. You're losing people. You're losing influence. You're losing views. You're losing posts. You're no longer the influencer you once were. Okay, we're going off the rails, but you get it. This is what's behind the heart of the message. He's being compared to Jesus and he's losing. And you got to wonder how... how how does he feel about this? How does he respond? Well, we know how he responds. I mean, look what it says here. I'm not the Messiah. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. He must become greater. I must become less. Do you get the humility, but also the power with that, with how he responds? He doesn't seem to be frustrated or angsty or angry. In fact, he seems to be very clear-eyed and very focused on who's who and on what's what. And you got to understand the impact and significance of this man's life. So when John the Baptist was put into prison, he was having some doubts about if Jesus truly was the Messiah. So he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask. Jesus gave them an answer and said, go tell John this. And this is where we pick this up in Matthew 11. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And with this statement, Jesus is reaching all the way back to the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years back to Malachi chapter 3 in a prophecy that John fulfilled. Now catch this endorsement. Listen to this. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. How great was John? The greatest, according to Jesus. How, how would you like him to endorse you like that? Pretty cool, right? Can you imagine him saying that about you and me? He actually does. What does the rest of the verse go on to say? Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
And who's that talking about? And me. Those of us who know Jesus, who love him, who follow him, who have entered the kingdom. So how do you know when you've entered the kingdom? When the kingdom has entered into you. I mean, remember what Jesus talked through with Nicodemus? If you'll think back with me a couple chapters and a couple weeks ago, he said, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need an inside-out transformation. And with the woman at the well that Julie referenced with the, with the um, vision verse for living water, which I love, we went through that passage like a couple weeks ago as well. The woman at the well, who Jesus says, basically, are you tired of being thirsty? How about some living water? How about your deepest, quir- qu- deepest thirst being quenched? It's about entering into the kingdom. And really what John has painted for us as a picture, three chapters into his gospel, but we'll, we'll see this continue to play out through the rest of the gospel. There are really two kinds of people in the world when it comes to the kingdom and knowing and following Jesus. There are those who have received him and those who reject him. And there really is no middle ground. Look at these verses that we've, that we've seen here. John 3.16, last, last Sunday, Gary took us through this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Can you get behind that? Yeah. Me too. Okay. Our verse that closed out our chapter today, verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Yes, love it. But whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Oh, wow. That has some weight to it. How does that work? How does God's love and God's wrath work? How do we make sense out of that? How do we understand that? Well, the reality is that he transforms us as we enter into his kingdom, but you can only truly understand that, and you can only truly understand his love and his wrath through that The cross is the only lens by which you can look at God's love and God's wrath and understand how they work together. Because God's love without the cross is a God who loves you to the point that you have a license to live however you want. And our broken culture constantly construes the gospel to be just that. Oh yeah, I believe in God, but I'm gonna live like hell. Not okay. No, that's not God's love, that's license. That's not what God's love is about. But what about God's, God's wrath with that? I mean, when you think of wrath, what do you think of? I, I think of someone who's volatile and volcanic in their anger and you don't know what's gonna happen or when you're gonna get it. So you give them a wide berth or you tiptoe around them. And is that biblical wrath? And is that what the Bible means by God being wrathful at times? And the answer is no. That's not what wrath is about either. And Old Testament to New, the Bible talks about God's wrath 600 times. So we got to understand how God's love and his wrath meet at the cross. And the more we understand about God and truly understand who he is, the better we will understand how all this works. When Moses asks God this incredible ask and says, God, I want to see you. And God reveals himself to him. In the book of Exodus, we're going way, way back, thousands of years ago, 
It says this, and he, God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, and understand, this is God saying, okay, this is who I am. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Tons we could talk about with that. But you do see this interplay of God's love and God's wrath. And now we begin to understand how they might intersect at the cross. Because wrath isn't this volcanic anger of God. It's God's settled opposition to evil. And as Gary helped us understand last week, we do not live in a neutral world. We live in a broken world. And a world that, quite frankly, at times is profoundly evil and awful. Do you not want a God who's just and fair and who not only restrains evil and works against it, but ultimately someday will destroy it? Or let's make this a little more personal. You ever been hurt by somebody? Wronged by somebody? Betrayed by somebody? You ever been on the receiving end of that? Of course you have. I have. And everything in us cries out, this is not right. And frankly, left to our own devices, many of us will look for a way to get back at that person. Oh, yeah? Wait till I deal with you. And that is intuitive because we intuitively realize that there is a cost that now has been incurred. Someone hurts us that deeply, it costs us, it hurts us. And there really is a decision, there's a choice that we can make, actually a series of choices, but we can take revenge against that person, we can exact the cost of what they did by taking it out on them, or we begin to understand how this works. Where God the Father and God the Son say, you don't pay the cost, we will. And they partner together. Jesus goes to the cross and his scripture tells us in a number of places, he takes all of our sinfulness, all of our selfishness, all the wrongness, all the brokenness on himself. And by doing so, he removes that from us. And in its place through his death, burial and resurrection, he gives us power for right living with him and other people. And the reason we can read verses like forgive as you have been forgiven, because we have And you can forgive someone even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't want to, because you've been forgiven and you know what it's like to be forgiven if you've entered the kingdom, if you've received Jesus into your life and as you know him as your Lord and Savior. And the reason that final verse, verse 36, can say that God's wrath remains on someone who doesn't believe is because it hasn't been directed to the cross. But if it has been directed to the cross by you choosing to believe, then God's rightful wrath against evil and selfishness and awfulness and brokenness is taken on by Jesus and absorbed by him. Okay, so where are we going with all this? This is all about identity. That's where we're going with this. Because when you know Jesus, he helps you discover your true identity as you recognize his and respond to his. I mean, here's the bottom line, if you're looking for it. How could John the Baptist respond that way to Jesus when everybody supposedly is leaving him and going to Jesus and he has every reason to be bitter and jealous and angry and frustrated and angsty and instead he responds with, he must become greater and I must become less? How does that work? This is how it works. 
John knew who Jesus was. Therefore, he knew who he was. You will only discover your true identity when you understand Jesus's identity. Which begs the question, who's Jesus? He's a great example. He's inspirational. He's an amazing teacher. He's an avatar. He's a sage. He's a wise man. He's a prophet. But again, in bottom lining, these identities that are given to Jesus, every single one of them is a rejection of Jesus. Not a receiving of who he really is. And if we need more persuasion, look what John goes on to say. He's talking about Jesus and says he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. But whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Now, this word certified also can be translated sealed. And that is significant because in the ancient Near East where you have a culture where many people cannot read or write, how do you know something is true? How do you know something is certifiable? How do you know something is legit? Because of the seal that it comes with. That's why seals were widely used in correspondence because when you saw that seal, you knew that this was the real deal. Next week when you come, you will see a bunch of banners here as we begin our Advent celebration. And each banner will represent a gospel. And we're calling this a gospel Christmas because what we'll do is we'll look at Jesus's identity and the Christmas story through every single one of the gospels. And you will see a seal on each of those banners with a symbol on it. And that seal and that banner represent that identity of Jesus. And literally what's being said here is if you will believe who the Father, who God the Father says that Jesus is, then you will cross over from death to life. You will discover your true identity, who God truly created you to be. And my friends, more than ever, is this relevant and necessary for you and me to hear? Because we live in a culture that is desperately trying to find its identity. We live in a culture where people are desperately trying to figure out who they are. And again, I don't mean this in terms of sexual identity, but if you were to overlay a, a, a question on this, it would be, what do you identify as? Who do you identify as? And really at the heart of that is, who are you? And what our culture is looking to is this identity that you have to create. You curate it, you manage it, you, you protect it, you promote it what others think and say about you, post about you, that's your identity. And our culture believes that. But only in Jesus Christ will you have an identity that is received and not achieved. And I will say that again. Only in Jesus do you have an identity that is received and not achieved. Do you know what an achieved identity is? A bad dream. And I will explain it to you. You know that I run because I love Jamie, not because I love running. I love Jamie, therefore I run, which is some weird philosophical quote somewhere probably. But all that being said, you know what the best thing about running is? Stopping. <laughs> I love how I feel when I am done running. I love the endorphins. You know, there's lots of great things that come with it. 
Lots of great byproducts that come from running, but my favorite part is the end, is when I'm done. Do you know what an achieved identity is? It's a treadmill you will never get off. Do you know what one of my worst dreams is, one of my nightmares, and it happens every so often? I'm on a run and I cannot stop. No one will let me stop, I just keep running. I really wanna stop, nope, keep running. And I run and I run and I run and I never stop. That's what our culture's doing when it comes to identity. And the irony is, the harder you work at it, the more elusive it becomes. And you keep looking and you keep looking and you have this thirst, you have this hunger that you're trying to satisfy that can only be satisfied in Jesus. Who does God say you are? Who does God say who I am? If you believe that, you're certifying, you're sealing, you're saying that's real, that, that, that really is true. And it is. And if that's not enough for you, John brings in this beautiful wedding imagery, and I, I wish we had more time. What do you do until Tuesday? Can we talk about this? There's so much here. I mean, it's just so rich and vibrant and powerful and practical. But he basically says the bride belongs to the bridegroom. Okay, so who is John? He is the best man. Who is the bride? You, me, the church. We are the bride of Christ. All throughout scripture, Old Testament to new, our relationship to God is described as God is our groom and us as his bride. Once again, John knew who he was because he knew who Jesus was. And not just because John was a prophet and had a responsibility. It, it, the identity goes way deeper than that. I had a great best man at my wedding. He was my college roommate, one of my best friends. His name's Patrick. He listens to this podcast, so I'm gonna make sure that I get something in here for him. But he was a great best man. We had a heart-to-heart -heart about his role before the wedding ceremony. I said, okay, pal, as best man, let's just make sure we're on the same page. Your job is to make sure I get to the wedding and that I'm okay. I don't want you and the guys from my bachelor party the night before putting me in a body cast and wheeling me in for my ceremony. That's a no-go. You gotta make sure that I get there. And that's a whole nother sermon and story about what that bachelor party was. Aye, 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 I'm still forgiving them. But that being said, he did that part. The other part was, Patrick, don't lose the rings. I'm entrusting the rings to you. When it comes time in the ceremony, when pastor looks and asks for the rings, you need to produce. Don't even think about losing them. You hang on to them. And he did. He hang on to the rings. And Patrick, when it's time to make the getaway, you need to make sure my truck works, okay? Don't let them sabotage my truck. I need to be able to drive away with my bride. He kind of failed on that one. But, but all the other ones, he did really, really good because he knew his role. He knew who he was. And when we think about biblical marriage, it is a picture of God's relationship to us. That's why as Jesus followers, we will always have something to say about marriage because marriage at the end of the day was not created by a government or a municipality or a county. It was instituted by God as a picture of our relationship to him. That's why we can and never will compromise on that. So that's why in our broken culture, when you have friends with benefits, what you're really saying by that picture as it relates to God and us, that God takes advantage of his girlfriend, the church, until she no longer meets his needs and then he moves on. Is that the gospel? No. 
Thankfully not. What about two people living together? Okay, so we meet up, hook up, shack up, break up. Okay, so God meets up with his girlfriend, the church, and gives things a try with her, won't commit to her, and then he takes advantage of her, or she takes advantage of him, and at the end of the day, they no longer love each other, and so they move on. Is that the gospel? And the answer is no, thank God it's not. Marriage is one man and one woman in a covenant lifelong relationship who commit to one another, who serve and love one another and sacrifice for one another. And God as our groom protects us, provides for us, is a constant for us, will not walk out on us, will not leave us, but commits to us and is always with us. That is the picture of the gospel. That's the picture of marriage. And because of that reality of that identity, in part, John can say, he must become greater and I must become less. And I'm fascinated by that. In fairness, in context, Jesus is the Messiah and John is not. And he's once again clarifying that for his disciples. But I think there's more to it than, than that. And I think there's definite application for you and me. What does it mean for my life? For God to become greater and for me to come less. Or for that, for you. For God to become greater in your life and for you to become less. Well, I think one of those extremes we, is intuitive. One of the extremes we can go to with that is, is pride. So, little exercise we've done before. Take your hand, point it like this. No, we're not going to sing this little light of mine, I promise. But take your hand, point up and say, God. God. Now, take your finger and point it to you and say, Not. not. It's enormously clarifying in all my relationships, including my relationship with God. I think we get that. But there is another extreme that this speaks to. And that's this false humility that sometimes creeps its way out. It comes out in our language. And we say things like, oh, you know, God did that, not me. God gets all the credit for that, not me. Please stop saying that. Because it's not true. Why does God give the spirit without limit as this very passage talks about if he does not expect us to partner with him, to trust and obey him, to have him empower what we do so that we can live the life he always intended for us? That's not just God, that's God in you. It really does matter how you live your life. So please, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not about a false humility, and it's certainly not about pride. It's about transformation. That's really what all this is about. And because he has transformed us, he really does expect us to trust and obey him. As he becomes greater and we become less, he expects us to trust and obey him. I'm a duck fan. No secret about that. Sorry, beaver fan. Um, I like... I like the beavers too when they're not playing the ducks. <laughs> Duck fan. I get a text last night. Are you going to stay up and watch the game? Because it's a late game with the late football game playing Utah. And I said, no, I preach tomorrow. I have an early morning. I'll watch to a reasonable hour and then I'm going to bed. Well, when I went to bed, the game wasn't over and the ducks won last night, which is great. Yeah. My question is, how come Gary Brashears only talks about the ducks when they lose? He'll never talk about them when they win, but that's another, that's another angst I have that we'll talk about another time. But here's the deal. I am a Duck fan. Please hear me. I am a Duck fan. I am not a Duck follower. And there is an enormous difference. 
I do not worship the Oregon Ducks, despite what you might think. I don't. And here we go. Jesus is not looking for fans when it comes to following and trusting and obeying him. He's looking for followers. So who are you? Are you a fan or are you a follower? Will you trust and obey him when it's difficult? When it doesn't make sense? When it's, when it's hard? Will you trust him when no one else around you will? You know, Jesus himself said in John 14, not once, not twice, but three times, make sure we didn't miss it. If you love me, you will what? Obey what I command. And my friends, partial obedience is still disobedience. So as we let this settle in and as we invite the Holy Spirit as we always try to do to speak to your life and mine is there an area where you know you were partially obeying because there is for me the Lord's revealed to me recently there's a part of my life that I'm still quite frankly trying to understand and sort out but I know it's an area where I am partially obeying him I'm not fully obeying him and, and I want to and in that same passage in, in John 15, actually, Jesus talks about this reality that there will be those times that he prunes like you prune branches off a tree or a bush to, to help us grow stronger and deeper in him. And there's definitely some pruning going on in my life. And my part is to obey fully, not just obey when I want to or feel like it. Partial obedience is still disobedience. I'm not willing to settle for that. And I hope you're not either which really brings us to, to where we're at here this morning. We cannot talk about a passage with these kind of realities for your life and mine and not respond. Oh, you can, and I can, but what we're basically doing is rejecting Jesus, rejecting what the Spirit's telling us when we do, and, and, and we don't have to settle for that. And that's the irony. Even in this area where I'm partially obeying, I'm doing that because at the end of the day, I don't really believe Jesus for what he says. I'm willing to settle for this brokenness or sinfulness or whatever it is, rather than believing him for who he says he is and what he wants to do and that he has something better for me, better than my partial obedience. And the same is true for you. Like me, will you choose to do business with this? and choose to begin trusting him in that area? Well, let's walk through what this could possibly look like. In a gathering this size, there may be some of you who you know that you're a fan, but you're not a follower. You've never made that defining moment decision to receive Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior. I mean, to your credit, and it is to your credit. You, you, maybe you read your Bible, you come to church. That's all proof that the Spirit of God is working in your life. But there is a defining moment, a defining season, where you choose to stop being a fan and be a follower by entering into the kingdom and receiving him into your life. Have you done that? Because you can. Right here this morning. And I'll lead you in a prayer to do that in just a bit. And for some of you, you know, hopefully most of you, if not all of you, you know you're in the kingdom. 
man, then celebrate that. Remember that you have an identity that can never be taken from you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to achieve it. It doesn't matter what me or anyone else thinks about you. It's an identity that you have in Jesus Christ. And you can anchor your life to that and take that to the bank. And some of you need to celebrate that by getting baptized. You know, when Jesus comes into our life, he washes us, he cleanses us from the inside out. All baptism does is show that you've made that decision. And man, baptisms are celebrations. We'd love to do that with you here this morning. We filled the tank. It's warm. We have towels. We have clothes. Literally, for anyone who wants to get baptized, we've systematically removed every excuse you might have to get baptized here this morning because maybe you haven't. And today's the day. And my friends, almost every time we do this in one of our services, at least one person steps forward and says, yep, came to church today, not planning on getting baptized, but I'm going to because I want to. We would love for that to be you. I personally will go stand right over there by the drinking fountains. You come talk to me when we get to the music worship here in just a minute. You want to get baptized? We'll dunk you and celebrate. We would love to do that. And again, I would imagine in a gathering this size, some of you are struggling. And I would like to encourage you as a fellow struggler that the fact that you're struggling is proof the Spirit of God is working in your life because you would not be struggling if he wasn't. It is okay to not be okay. It is not okay to stay that way. When Jesus calls you and me to repentance, to turn from what we know is partial obedience or flat-out disobedience and to turn back to him, his timing is always now. It's not wait on that. Think about that. No, he, he wants us to obey now, which means choosing to trust him. And once again, some of you like me are struggling and, and you're struggling to trust him in an area like maybe I am. You have a spirit-empowered choice with that, by the way. You are not a victim. If you know Jesus, you have his empowerment because, once again, God gives the spirit without limit. You can do this. So the real question isn't if you can, it's if you will. And at the end of the day, there is blessing for those who will obey him. He promises that over and over again, and he delivers on that every single time. So, so will you. Too many of us live by how we feel instead of living by what we know. Maybe it's time to live by what you know. And if I still haven't persuaded you, can I give you just one more? When John the Baptist said, he must become greater, I must become less, what do you think was the emotion behind that? Was he gritting his teeth? Uh, he must become greater, I must become less. Was he frustrated? Was he disappointed? Was he angsty? I mean, how, how is he feeling? Well, we can answer that because the passage tells us. It says he was full of joy. The friend, the best man, is full of joy when he hears the groom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. As our worship team comes, as we prepare to respond, if you're not persuaded yet, then hear this. When you and I choose to trust and obey God, 
when we choose to not settle for a broken identity, but to live out our true identity with who he says we are, there is joy in that. Even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when circumstances are disappointing, even when people let you down, even when things don't play out the way you think they will, there is a joy for those who will choose to trust and obey Jesus, and it is your joy to have. So do not settle for any less. We're going to worship. Tony's going to lead us in a song that talks about God's faithfulness. And as he does so, for those of you who want to celebrate and remember what Jesus has done for you as a follower of his, we have communion off to the sides. We always have that every Sunday. I just want to call your attention to it again. You have permission and blessing and we exhort you, get up and go take communion if you want to. If you haven't been baptized, I'm right over there. You come talk to me and we will baptize you before this service ends. And if you have not crossed over from death to life and received Jesus into your life and you know you haven't, I'd love to lead you in a prayer to make that happen right now. And then we're going to worship. Lord, I pray for anyone here who isn't sure if they've truly made that defining moment decision to receive you as their Lord and Savior to enter your kingdom by doing so. I pray that right now, just between you and them, silently, they would say, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. Thank you that you will never leave me. Thank you that you quench my deepest thirst. And Lord, for those of us who are still looking, wrestling, asking questions, I pray that you would not leave them alone that they would continue to wrestle and struggle and ask the hard questions and be willing to live in that tension until they choose to step over from death to life to follow you. And Lord, for those of us who do know and love you, Lord, would you give us joy? Would you give us blessing like you promised to for those who will trust and obey you? Lord, if there's someone here who hasn't gotten baptized, I pray they would this morning. For those who need to remember your death, burial, and resurrection through communion, I pray they would do that. And Lord, would we sing and celebrate the God who is always faithful to us. And we pray all this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He is. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. I hope you believe that. I hope you're experiencing that. We have prayer teams who are coming forward now. We would love to pray with you. And honestly, this, this really is a safe place to be in process. And we all need prayer. And so my encouragement to you is to take advantage of, of um, this time. If there's anything we can pray for you about, these, these folks are here and available. I know them personally. I feel very good in trusting you to them. That song we just sung came, comes in part from John 14, 6, where Jesus himself says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this morning again, he calls us, all of us, to follow him. So will you? Not as a fan, as a follower. I hope you will because there's blessing and joy for us when we do. 
I want to pray his blessing over you. And as we prepare to go from here, I, I recognize there are some of you who are new to our church family. We're so glad you're here. We have a crew in our cafe right around the corner who would love to just buy you a drink and get to know you. We call this Next Steps. We'd love for you to participate in that. Let me pray. Lord, my, my voice is growing hoarse because I love to praise you. And I love to sing to you because of what you have done for me and what you promise for those who love you. Lord, thank you that you give us an identity when we choose to follow you that no one can ever take away from us. And you are the God who gives us joy and blessing when we trust and obey you, not on our terms, but on yours. So Lord, I pray that we would settle for nothing less than fully trusting you, fully obeying you, fully following you. And as we go from here, would we live your story in such a way that people are drawn to you. This culture desperately needs you. This world desperately needs you. And we have the only true source of hope in you. So would we be bold and deliberate and diligent in living that out and proclaiming that? And we ask this and God's people said, amen. amen. We hope to see you next Sunday. Go and live for him. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.